Thanks for joining us for our preaching podcast for the Point Church, Alberta campus. We believe strongly in the expositional preaching of God's Word that builds our faith and grows us up in Christ. We pray that this message will be a help to you on your journey of faith. Now join me as we get to the point. Now, over the last uh, several weeks, we have been in the book of Nehemiah. And let me tell you, this has been something that's been personally challenging to study through and preach through. Uh, I was over at the Perito Key campus the last couple weeks, uh, preaching through chapter two and chapter four. Today, we're gonna be in chapter five. So if you've got your Bibles, you can go ahead and get those out. Turn over to Nehemiah chapter five. And man, Nehemiah is a story of God's faithfulness to his people when they're dealing with opposition, when they don't know what tomorrow looks like. And man, that's so applicable for us today because I don't know about you, but my plans have changed a little bit over the last few months, okay? My fam- our Jordan's uh, parents have tried to plan va- family vacations and we've changed those plans like seven or eight times. You know, even planning a couple weeks ahead has been a little bit of a challenge during this pandemic, but here we are and God is still faithful. He's still in control. So I know all of us have experienced anxiety. We've experienced fear over the last several months, but through all of this, God has been right here with us. And we're gonna see that again, that God is with his people in Nehemiah chapter five. Now in chapter one, word comes to Nehemiah that his hometown is in ruins and that really weighs on his soul. And in chapter two, after praying for four months, he approaches King Artaxerxes and uh, in a very uh, climactic moment lays out everything that's on his heart. And God is faithful to change the heart of the king because he was the very one who wrote the order for the construction to stop on Nehemiah's hometown. And now not only is he allowing his cupbearer to go back, he's sending all the materials for them to go and build. He provides protection for him from their enemies that are surrounding them. And Nehemiah is able to come in and begin to lead his people. Now, last week we saw some internal struggles that he had with motivating his people to go and do work even though they were facing opposition. But up until this point, it's primarily been from the outside coming in. And I think a lot of times as the church, we are real quick to focus on the external oppositions that we face for the sake of the gospel. But today we're gonna see some internal opposition inside the body, inside the, the, the very people that are working together to bring their way of life back into order, there's some internal opposition. Now, this weekend, we celebrated the 4th of July. Man, we celebrated our independence and ultimately our way of life of liberty right? And man, I I love the 4th of July. Usually uh, when I was growing up as a kid, we'd go out to the lake and, you know, we would grill out and learn how to water ski and those kind of things. Um, You know, we weren't able to do that this weekend, but we had some friends with us, so we were able to still celebrate. But man, on the 4th of July, it is just impossible for me to think about that as a holiday without thinking of the people who gave their lives so that we could be in the, the scenario and situation that we're in today, right? So for the Israelites, they are coming back into a place and they don't have that immediate generation to look back on. You know, I can look at my grandfather who fought in a world war and I can think about his legacy that he's passing on. But for these people, they've been exiled. They've been spread out into Babylonian and now Persian captivity and they can't look to a generation uh, prior to them 
and see what their way of life should be. But if you go back into the book of Ezra, and this is really important for the context of where we're at today, they are rebuilding the temple before they rebuild the city. And man, they find the book of the law, all right? which would be the book of Deuteronomy and Leviticus, okay? I don't know about you, but if you've ever done one of those read the Bible in a year plans, man, you get there and it gets a little bit hard to get through some of those things, right? There's a lot of laws, there's a lot of details, okay? But when Ezra and the priests find this book, they throw a party out in the streets. Man, they're excited about this. They are fired up that the God who created the heavens and the earth gave them a way to live their life, but it's still new to them. They don't have this legacy to lean back on. Now they can go all the way back to the patriarchs and they can remember back to that point. But for them, they're coming back from exile. To them, this is something that is new and they're learning how to live life together. So just like our founding fathers understood, the war was just the beginning. Getting back to the place was just the beginning. Now they'd have to learn how to govern and lead their people and lead their people well. So I want you to see in verses one through five, there is a desperation of injustice in the land. Verse number one, now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, with our sons and our daughters, we are many. So let us get grain so that we may eat and keep alive. There were also those who said, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, we have borrowed money for the king's tax on our field and our vineyards. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers. Our children are as their children. And we are forcing our sons and daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but it is not in our power to help it. For other men have our fields and our vineyards. Now at the very beginning, there's a great outcry in the land. How do we know that this is a big deal? Because it says it's a great outcry, but this is the same word that's used to describe the Egyptian bondage that the Israelites found themselves in. They're saying this is as bad as it was whenever they were having to build bricks without straw, when they were under Egyptian bondage, when they were trying to get out. We also know that this is a bad deal because the wives are speaking out. Now, this is a very patriarchal society. At this point in time, the women typically wouldn't be coming to public gatherings to speak, but when the outcry is great, you have to speak up. You're compelled to speak up. Now, remember what's going on here. There is external opposition, okay? There's two guys, Sanballat and Tobiah. We're not gonna talk about them much today. Aren't you glad? I'm tired of hearing about them, but their forces are kind of coming in. They know that they're there. They're rebuilding a wall. Now, their main source of income was of their crops, was from their field. Now, a bunch of people that would have been working on the fields are now rebuilding the wall. Okay, they're not people with architecture degrees. They don't really know what they're doing building the wall, but they know that it has to be done because God has called Nehemiah to come back in for them to rebuild the wall. But because they're sending people there, they're not able to harvest their crops, which means they have to mortgage their fields, which doesn't really work like a mortgage does today. Instead, at this point, they would still be working their fields. They just wouldn't be getting anything back from their own hard work and from their own harvest. So they are in a place of need. They're in a place of desperation. And when people are desperate, 
you take every, every possible way that you can to come out of that desperation, right? When we find ourselves in fear, we may act in some pretty crazy ways to get ourselves out of that place. And not only that, they're being taxed heavily by the king of Persia who, has, who is allowing them to rebuild. But the taxes aren't the purpose of chapter 5. The purpose is the way that the Israelites and the Jewish people are treating one another. Okay, the only modern example that I have uh, for to really lay out what's happening here is imagine there were two people that were a part of this fellowship. Okay, they come in uh, from different families, but they are they're they're all they're both believers. They're both a part of the local fellowship. They may even come in and sit next to each other in church and worship together. Okay, now one of them has fallen on some hard times and they have to take out a high interest loan. Okay. And the person who's sitting next to them is the one who owns that loan, okay? And they come in every week and man, it comes prayer request time and they're, they're raising their hand and they're saying, hey, you know, pray for us. Our family's in a really tough spot. You know, we, we're, we've, lost a, we've lost a job. There's some sickness in the family, whatever the case may be. And every week that person says, yeah, yeah, you know, I'll pray for you. I'll pray for you. Faith without action is dead, right? James tells us that. So this would be just like that person saying, I'm gonna keep charging charging you that high interest. I'm gonna keep ringing you out for everything that I can and leaving you out to dry. Now, that's not the Christ-like thing to do, right? We know that, but this is what the people are doing because not only are the people who's, who've mortgaged their fields, are they in a tough spot? But the people who own those mortgages are also in a tough spot because they're looking at the future and it doesn't look good. Even when the future doesn't look good is not an excuse for us to treat one another poorly because God is in control. And the people have seen God's faithfulness. They have seen him lead them back from exile into a place where they have the book of the law, where the temple has been rebuilt, where the walls are starting to come up and they're starting to get back to a little bit of the way that life once was for them. And in addition, they're starting to send their sons and their daughters to serve as bond servants so that they can pay off their loans. Now, what is a bond servant? We can go back into Exodus and I could spend a lot of time unpacking this, but I don't think that that's important for the message today. But ultimately, God allowed for uh, bond servants to be placed in the law in the Pentateuch for them to go and work off debts. So essentially sons and daughters would go and they would work to pay off the debt of the family for them to be able to move on. Now that was controlled through this thing called the year of Jubilee. Okay, if you go back in, they would be uh, in bondage for about six years. And then on that seventh year, they would be set free and the debt would be wiped clean, whether it was paid off or not. Okay, so if everyone cooperates together, that's a good plan, but not everyone always has a cooperative spirit, okay? We are sinful people, we are fallen people, and here they are trying to capitalize on the weaknesses of the people around them. This is the injustice that we find in this day. And ultimately, this is an image of ourselves, of a broken, sinful people who are in need of a savior who are in bondage to living a life apart from a holy God, who has no way to be set free other than through a savior that we know as Jesus Christ. Verse number six, I was very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. So I took counsel with myself and I brought charges against the nobles 
and the officials and said to them, you are exacting interest each from his brother. And I held a great assembly against them and said to them, we, as far as we are able, have, brought, have bought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations, but you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. And they were silent and they could not find a word to say. Nehemiah sees an injustice in his people and he has to confront it. So when we see injustice within the body of Christ, we have to confront it, right? If someone is taking advantage of someone else in the body, we need to step up and we need to say something. Now in verse number six, he responds, he's angry. He sees the outcry of his people. He knows, uh, remember the law is kind of new, but he's getting into it. He's spending some time, he's learning. And what he finds out is the Jewish people aren't supposed to charge interest on each other whenever they're building their community together, much less in a time of crisis. No one can afford to pay the interest on this and it's holding the people as a whole back. Now, when God made his covenant with Abraham, he says, I will walk with you and your people will be my people. He doesn't say I will be yours and you will be mine. He says, your people will be my people. It's not just an individual relationship that God has, but it's with the people. And when they are taking advantage of each other, ultimately it's belittling God's plan for them to move together as a collective persons. They understood what community really means but there were still some who were taking advantage of the community for the advancement of themselves. So this is kind of a funny phrase that we see in the text when Nehemiah says, so I took counsel with myself, but ultimately he seeks counsel from his trusted advisors. He goes into the book of the law and he finds out what is wrong. And to an extent, they are able to, um, to charge taxes on each other or, or, charge, um, or charge interest on each other. But just because something is legal doesn't mean it's a good thing, okay? There may be some ways that they can act towards one another um, and still be jerks, okay? So the way that the Apostle Paul says it in the New Testament, he says, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful, Okay, so in other words, for us as a body of believers, just because some, you can do something doesn't mean it's necessarily beneficial for the body. The purpose of the corporate gathering of God's people is to edify and build one another up. And we should be seeking to do that in our lives from day to day, not just to um, do something because we, because we can, okay? When we find ourselves in a time of crisis, the community of faith is more important than the comfort and security of those who are able to have comfort and security. And we see this beautiful picture in the book of Acts when the church is coming together. And this is nothing that's mandated. Out of the love that they have for one another, they take care of one another. That's what God calls us to do, to take care of one another, to bear each other's burdens so that we can serve the Lord, so that we can advance the gospel. And man, the gospel's worth it every single time. The sacrifices that we see time and time again in the scriptures, somehow we've gotten to a place where we think that living, living a life for the sake of the gospel is not gonna cost us anything. The disciples were hunted and killed. Jesus was hung on a cross just for saying that sins can be forgiven through him. Verse nine. Nehemiah sees this injustice that has to be corrected and he comes to this moment. So I said, the thing that you are doing is not good. 
ought you not to walk in the fear of God to, pre- to prevent the taunts of the nations of our enemies. Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest, return to them this very day, their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, their houses, and the percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you've been exacting from them. And they said, we will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do what you say. And I called the priest and made them swear to do as they had promised. I also shook out the fold of my garment and said, so may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied. And all of the assembly said, amen, and praised the Lord. And the people did as they promised. Now in the scripture, sometimes there are some conversations that happen that I'm sure there was more discussion here. Okay, Nehemiah didn't just come up and say, hey, you're gonna do this. And the people said, okay, praise the Lord and leave, okay? There's some discussion that happens, but ultimately God is the one who changes the hearts of people. God was the one in chapter two who changed the heart of King Artaxerxes. God is the one who in chapter four changed the hearts of the people to go to work. And here God is the person who changes the hearts of the people as they see that they are hurting one another. You know, it's, it's a hard thing sometimes to go to somebody and say, hey, the thing that you're doing is not good. I mean, people don't respond to that very well, do they? We like to get defensive. We like to justify ourselves. And, you know, sometimes we may even have some kind of right to justify ourselves in this moment. But in, the, in a leadership position, it's hard to call out somebody who's doing something that is wrong or that is not good. But then the challenge, the motivation that Nehemiah has, he's saying, you're not living in the fear of the Lord in this moment. You're afraid. That's why you're taking the interest. You're afraid. That's why you're uh, taking away the fields of the people. If we lived in the fear of the Lord and we knew and we really believed that God was in control, we wouldn't live a life crippled by fear and anxiety. We would do the things that God has called us to do. Now, A couple weeks ago, we were introduced to this little cycle that happens of an opportunity, an opposition, and an obedience that Nehemiah has. Now, here he has an opportunity to go to the people. The opposition would be the way that they receive that. But the obedience here is not just with Nehemiah, but it's also with the people. Nehemiah gives the people an opportunity. Now, I want you to imagine if you are one of the people who are making money off of this, you may be, man, immediately, I need to keep doing this because I've got to provide for my family, because we've got to be able to come out better on the other side. But ultimately, that's the opposition, right? We tempt ourselves by our own selfish needs and desires, but here they humble themselves so that the people can move ahead together. And man, the people are a distracted people. If we were to go back to a chapter, we would see them linking arms together to come and rebuild what once was in their city but distracted people can get so far off the mark that you're farther away from where you started, okay? Now, if you think about some kind of New Year's resolution, if you've ever had one, you know, I'm not asking you to raise your hands, but I do this just about every year. I start out saying, you know, I'm gonna lose some weight, I'm gonna eat healthier, I'm gonna have some better habits. And then come February 1st, those are out the window, I'm further away from where I started, right? You with me? When we take our eyes off of the mission that God has for us and we get distracted, we can be farther away from where we started. So for us today in Alberta, it is for us to make sure that we have our eye 
on our mission that we say at the end of every one of our services to go and make disciples of all nations, to baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, the Holy Spirit, and to teach them to observe the ways that Jesus has commanded us to live. Man, we can get distracted by so many things. We can get distracted by good things, but we have to stay focused on what God has called us to do here in our community to run away from any selfish ambition that we have, but understand that the purpose that God has us here is not to live in anxiety or fear that we're gonna lose some kind of leadership or some kind of status in the community, but to know that the apostle Paul says, I count all of that as lost for the sake of the gospel. Man, we have to put our pride aside so that Jesus can reign. We have to not be distracted in this moment. And I believe that God has us here today for a purpose. You know, a lot of times when, I talk to our teenagers, they talk about God's plan for their life. And they always talk about, you know, what college am I going to go to? Who am I going to marry? What kind of job am I going to have one day? Man, the will of God is what he has for you right now, what he has in front of you. When he gives you an opportunity, you're going to face your own opposition going, but God, what if I don't say the right thing? What if I don't present the gospel in the right way? Man, that's on the Holy Spirit. If we're obedient to what God has for us in the moment, we're going to be looking to share the gospel every single day, every time that we have opportunity. We're going to be seeking to serve the community. Man, can I tell you a beautiful image of that is Feed Alberta. We have people that take food out to families in our community. And man, that is serving a very basic need. And that is beautiful. That's obeying the will of God that he has for us in this moment. Man, that's incredible. And here there is a conflict that the people have. The people respond stunningly because God uses ordinary people to do extraordinary things. And God uses Nehemiah to call them back to themselves. Now, it could be one thing for Nehemiah to, now leaders are tempted with this a lot. I'm going to go put them in their place, right? But that's not what he does. He says, hey, the thing that you're doing is not right. The, thing that we're, the things that you're doing are hurting our people. So instead of Nehemiah coming out guns loaded for bear on his people, he brings them out to be restored. Now, every Christian conflict should be surrounded by restoration of bringing people back into the fellowship, of bringing people back into serving the Lord. Man, that's hard to do sometimes. It's difficult for us to wrap our minds around that because we have feelings and emotions and man, those can get in the way sometimes. But anytime we have an argument, there should be restoration. And that's a picture of us being reconciled to God. While we were still enemies, Christ died for us. While the soldiers were spitting on Jesus and mocking him, he said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. But man, we get worked up over such small things. Verse number 14. Moreover, from that time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes the king, 12 years. Neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them for their daily ration 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded it over the people, but I did not do so because of the fear of God. I also preserved the work on the wall and we acquired no land and my servants were gathered there for the work. 
Moreover, there were a hundred at my table, 150 men, Jews and officials, besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. Now, what was prepared at my expense each day was one ox and six choice sheep and birds, and every 10 days, all kinds of wine in abundance. Yet, for all this, I did not demand the food allowance of the governor because the service was too heavy on the people. Remember for my good, O God, all that I have done for this people. So here, we finally have um, a scriptural reference to Nehemiah's actual position. He's serving as the governor. Now, this by itself is like, is a miracle, okay? If we go back into chapter two, he approaches the king, he lays his heart out, and the king says, okay, you can go back. When are you going to be back? Okay, Nehemiah, is, as the cupbearer, is very near and dear to the king. He's one of the trusted people, but King Artaxerxes allows Nehemiah to stay and serve his people. And here we see him model servant leadership. Okay, he's modeling servant leadership. There's a hardship on the people. If anyone is in a position to take interest and to, to tax the people, it's Nehemiah in his position. But he says, hey, I'm not gonna do that. It's too heavy of a burden on the people. What we need in our communities and our country is leadership that fears the Lord, that fears God. Because of Nehemiah's view of who God was, he understood that he was not at the center of all of reality. You know, and that's true for us. We are a small part of God's redemptive story for mankind, and that in and of itself is an incredible honor for us. But because he fears the Lord, he doesn't tax the people. He doesn't take advantage of the people because he sees them as valuable, because he understands that he is leading God's chosen people. A good leader knows that everything is not about them. And at this point in time, Nehemiah's dealt with opposition from his own people. He's dealt with opposition from without. And I believe that in this moment, he's dealing with opposition from himself. Because as holy as he may be in this moment, he is a fallible human being. You know, too often, whenever we look at people who are written about in the Bible, even prophets, man, we think surely they're, they're not gonna make any mistakes. These are people who are called and chosen by God. I'd challenge you to look a little bit closer. A lot of them are fallible people and they deal with the same things that we do. So in this moment, Nehemiah could have said, you know, I could tell them not to do that, but I could still take what's due for me because all of the previous governors did that. I could still have the people come and serve and still give food, but he leads by example. He humbles himself to what God is telling him to do. And he puts into action the very thing that he goes to correct the people for. He doesn't say, do as I say. He says, do as I do. And he leads by example. You know, we've seen this play out so many times that just a little bit of power can corrupt somebody. And it comes so fast and you don't ever see it coming. But for Nehemiah in this moment, he humbles himself to serve the people. In the same way that Nehemiah was obedient, we should be obedient for the same reason, for the fear of the Lord because of who God is, we treat people in a certain way, right? Because the way, because of who God is, we know that everyone is worthy of hearing the gospel, right? And we don't want to damage that in the way that we have our relationships. If anyone was in a position of authority, if anyone could have put someone in their place, it was Jesus Christ. He was the son of God. He didn't take advantage of his situation or his position, but instead he humbled himself because he knew that he was an eternal being. We, just like we are eternal beings, he lived a humble, perfect life and gave himself for us. 
leaders can't take advantage of their positions. They have to remember who they serve. And Nehemiah says in verse 19, I serve my God, but also my people. Leaders who don't care for their people aren't worth much, right? And we can see that in the way that they sacrifice. So husbands, does it show that you care for your family in the way that you spend time with them in the way that you love them? Business person, does it show that you care about your employees and your clients by the way that you treat them? What about to the lost people that we encounter from day to day? What does it say about the way that we treat them? And are you able to say today, remember for my good, oh God, what I have done for my people? Or is it remember, oh God, what I've done for me? That's a challenge for us today.